Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. is a healing remedy. We're going to reach out to areas where man has seemed to have difficulty. As we concentrate that the gifts of the Holy Spirit might function are what the secularist might speak of as the paranormal, let us believe. Let us believe. Well, hello again, my creepy burrito lovers, and welcome back to another Saucy Wednesday. As you can hear, my voice is back and ready to talk your ear off for the next hour. (laughs) And when I say hour, honestly, who knows, because it might be longer than an hour, because we have a big old burrito to unwrap today. Mmm, so juicy. So make sure you support the bottom today, guys, because we got a double-hander. I am talking extra saucy, double meat, tons of cheese, three scoops of rice, and a big nice glass of Kool-Aid. <laughs> but before we take a bite, I think we have a review. A sweet-ass review. We got a review from Catherine, and she says... The Creepy Burrito was the first podcast that I've listened to, and I've downloaded a podcast app using up very valuable storage space on my phone just to listen to them, and I can't wait to tune in every week and get lost in that sauce. 10 out of 10 tacos. Ooh, that's a lot of tacos. And we have a special place in our hearts for you, Catherine. Especially since you're using your storage space to listen to us, because if anyone knows about storage space, it is moi. <laughs> because I have a very shitty phone. So thank you, Catherine. For being the best. Keep on listening. Keep on creeping. <laughs> Keep on creeping. Keep on burritoing. Keep on eating. Yeah. That creepin' burritin'. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed it already, or if you like to randomly listen to podcasts without looking at the title, today we are covering the Jonestown Massacre. In one week, it will be exactly 42 years since this mass suicide. Over 900 people drank poison drinks at the beseech of their leader. This is where the popular phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid, was coined. The phrase typically carries a negative connotation, which is a bit callous, in my opinion. One would use the phrase if you believe someone is changing their beliefs due to a popular opinion, or if they are peer pressured, or basically when someone is seemingly too stupid to think for themselves. Which, first off, they didn't even drink Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. Don't tarnish Kool-Aid's name. Oh, yeah! (laughs) And secondly, 
I believe that it is incredibly dehumanizing to the victims and their families and even the survivors of Jonestown because it was so much, much more than just people blindly committing suicide following a lost cause. But before we get into all that and the events leading up to it, we need to talk about their leader for a little bit. Mm. Jim Jones. Jim Jones was born in the midst of the Great Depression on May 13th, 1931 to Lynetta and James Jones. Lynetta and James owned a small, unsuccessful farm in Crete, Indiana, and pretty much swimming in debt. Jim's birth only added more financial burden to the family and stress on his parents' relationship. James Jones was a World War I veteran who was an aggressive, chain-smoking alcoholic, and Lynetta, who was 15 years younger than her husband, never wanted to be a mother and often fantasized about escaping her unhappy marriage. Eventually, the family was forced to move to Lynn, Indiana in 1934 when the bank foreclosed on their home. The family took residence in a less than desirable part of town and lived in a house without plumbing. Shortly after the family moved, James' health started to steadily decline and he eventually quit his job after a nervous breakdown. When he was in World War I, he was on the front lines and was a victim of a mustard gas attack, and the toll that it took on his body was pretty brutal. His lungs were deteriorating, which made it very difficult for him to breathe, or talk nonetheless. The family barely survived on James's disability checks, so when Jim started school at the age of six, Lynetta started working a factory job to help support the family. James didn't help at home at all. He didn't cook, he didn't clean, he didn't even take care of Jim. And with his father emotionally absent and his mother constantly working, Jim was neglected and pretty much left to fend for himself. He grew up with no affection and even worse yet, no discipline. He cried a lot, swore a lot, and would even steal candy from the local store. In school, he earned the nickname Dennis the Menace for his lack of respect for authority figures However, his teachers did consider him to be very bright and intelligent. Being raised with no love or tenderness, Jim was constantly on the defensive and it was pretty hard for him to make friends. He spent most of his time alone reading. Terrified of his father, Jim would often roam the streets before and after school in order to avoid him. An elderly woman in the neighborhood took pity on Jim and would invite him in for cake from time to time. It was during one of these visits that Jim got his first exposure to religion and accompanied her to the Church of Nazarene. Lynetta was skeptical about this newfound hobby. She had doubts about a god and never raised Jim with any particular religion. Nonetheless, Jim was very attentive during church and had an uncanny ability to recite sermons and quote lengthy biblical verses. Now, the Church of Nazarene is a Pentecostal church. Pentecostalism is a form of Christianity that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. They believe that prophecies, miracles, healings, and speaking in tongues are all gifts of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostal Mass is usually loud and intensely emotional. Typically consists of yelling, crying, chanting, and cheering. Probably pretty fascinating for someone as young as Jim Jones to watch. Church was very alluring to young Jim, and he quickly developed a great interest for religion. Almost an obsession. He found the love and acceptance he so desperately was in need of. The church community quickly became a second family to him, and he was eager for Sunday to arrive so he can get to Mass. 
During the week, he would wander into the woods where he had created a makeshift altar with candles and flowers and would stand on a stump to deliver sermons of his own to the local forest animals. Jim also developed another morbid hobby of gathering up all the roadkill around town in order to give each one a funeral. One local child even claimed that he saw Jim Jones stab a cat for a ritualistic ceremony. Well, that's cute. <laughs> At least he's doing sermons. He's doing his due diligence, cleaning up the roads of the roadkill. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, serving back to the community, right? Well, Jim started exhibiting even more odd behavior by making claims such as he was being held down by the angel of death. One day when he was nine, he climbed on the roof of a building and proclaimed that he had magical powers and he could fly, then proceeded to jump off and plummet to the ground, breaking his arm. Jim Jones was just 10 years old during the Second World War in 1939, and he quickly became fascinated with Adolf Hitler. During recess, when the kids would pretend to be in the war, and they would play like army boys, he would always insist on being a Nazi, in particular, their leader. He would recruit the smaller children to be his soldiers, and when they didn't goose step high enough, he'd whack them with a stick. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a little bit abrasive, Jim. As a teenager, he had no interest in the same things that his classmates did. He didn't like to socialize, and he thought dancing and drinking alcohol was sinful. He never spoke unless he initiated the conversation first, or if it was to antagonize his teachers in debates. He was never into sports, but had another knack for organizing, and by age 14 was able to establish a baseball league. However, allegedly, during a team meeting, a few kids on the team saw Jim drop a pet dog from a window to its death. Oh. Consequently, the kids became so scared of him that the league quickly dismantled. Yeah, that'll do it. Mm -hmm. After this, Jim continued to spend most of his time alone reading and developed an interest in politics. At this point in his life, he began to create his own faith or religion, if you will. He established what he considered to be an ideal society with influential experiences through God. Around the 1940s, Jim created his own mock church called God's House. Whose house? God's House. Say what? Um, Where he would invite schoolmates to attend his sermons in the loft above his parents' garage. And he would lock them inside and refuse to let them leave until he deemed his service complete, which would sometimes last for hours. When Jim was 16 years old, he developed a passion for racial equality. He even created a makeshift church out of blankets on a street corner located in a mixed-race neighborhood, preaching that society needed to break down the social constructs and stop the divide of race, gender, and age so all people are united equally. Jim seemed to relate to the African-American community in the sense of he too was also an outcast and isolated from society. He saw firsthand the discrimination and segregation that they received. Not only was racism rampant in this Depression-era Midwest town, but his father James was a white supremacist and was associated with the Ku Klux Klan. When James heard of his son preaching racial equality, he was absolutely livid and told Jim that no African-American was ever allowed in his home. Thereafter, Jim stopped speaking to his father entirely. By this point in his life, James suffered a stroke that left him unable to speak, and Lynetta allegedly had an affair. 
The marriage eventually fell apart, and in 1945, Jim and Lynetta were divorced, and she took Jim and moved to Richmond, Indiana. There, Jim attended Richmond High School and picked up a job working the night shift as an orderly at Reed Memorial Hospital. In December of 1948, he graduated high school with honors. Richmond, Indiana was also pretty racially segregated, and when Jim Jones showed up preaching equality, he received a warm welcome from the local black community and quickly made friends. While working at Reed Memorial Hospital, Jim also met a young nurse by the name of Marceline Baldwin. They dated, quickly fell in love, and were married by 1949, when Jim was 18 and Marceline was 22. Marceline believed in God and attended church, but at this point in his life, Jim Jones claimed to be agnostic, meaning he neither believed or disbelieved in a god. He went back to his creation of an ideal society. He spoke of leading a life of perfection by saying no to selfishness and saying yes to love. The two relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where Jim then attended Indiana University Bloomington and maintained a straight A average. While attending the university there, he witnessed a passionate speech given by Eleanor Roosevelt about the plight of African Americans in America. Jim was so impressed by the speech, it had reignited his fire to bring a positive change to society by racial equality. He began to tell others that he came in contact with in the classroom that hypocrisy was rampant. He quit a basketball team because his coach was a racist and even walked out of a barber shop with half of his hair cut because the barber refused to cut a black man's hair. During one visit with Marceline's parents back in Richmond, her mother mentioned how it wasn't Christian for different races to marry. Offended by the comment, Jim packed his belongings and left immediately and didn't speak to the family for months afterwards until eventually Marceline's mother apologized. In 1951, the couple relocated again to Indianapolis, where Jim attended Indiana University, and in the spring of 1952, Jim accepted a position as a student pastor at the Somerset Methodist Church. Fueled by Marceline's mother's comment, Jim sought out to infiltrate the racism within the church. He excelled in the role and quickly set up a youth center, which was open for children of all faiths. But his ministry only lasted four years before finally complaints of Jim and his integrated services reached the church board. Churches in Indianapolis at the time were strictly segregated, and Jim's allowance of the integration was a real problem. Eventually, he was forced to leave the small traditional church. Jim and a few like-minded individuals left to start their own congregation inside of a rented church in a racially mixed area in Indianapolis. They named the church Community Unity, which was then named to Wings of Deliverance Ministry, and then finally renamed to People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel in 1956. The temple joined the Disciples of Christ in 1960, and Jim was officially ordained in 1964. Now, during this time, Jim and Marceline decided to start what they referred to as their Rainbow Family and adopted several non-white children. In 1954, they adopted Agnes, who was part Native American, then later adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. In June of 1959, the couple had their first and only biological child, naming him Stephen Gandhi Jones. 
They adopted a white son named Tim, whose mother was a People's Temple member. And then finally, in 1961, they became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child, naming him Jim Jones Jr. They received a lot of public ridicule over it, and Marceline begged Jim to move out of the racist Midwestern community. But he refused, saying, how could his children learn what he believed in if they didn't live it? In 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jim Jones as the director of the local Human Rights Commission. The mayor very much intended the role to be low profile, but Jim ignored his advice and immediately took to the radio and television programs to express his views and threw himself directly into the civil rights movement. During this time, he desegregated churches, movie theaters, restaurants, the telephone company, the city police department, an amusement park, and even the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. In 1961, Jim Jones was mistakenly taken to a black hospital when he collapsed of exhaustion. When the mistake was realized, they tried to quickly rectify the situation, but he refused to move. He even took to making the beds and emptying the bedpans while he was there. This publicity caused political pressures on the hospital, which caused officials to end up desegregating the wards. At one point, swastikas were painted on the homes of two black families, and Jim Jones immediately went through the neighborhood, comforting locals and reassuring them that they shouldn't move away. Afterwards, he wrote to American Nazi leaders and took to the media to publicly shame them. Jim's actions were way ahead of his time, and unsurprisingly, the local white supremacists felt threatened by Jim Jones. They targeted him, his family, and the temple with intimidation and assaults. Swastikas were painted on the temple. Strangers spat on Marceline while she walked through the streets with her multiracial family. Even letters arrived declaring that people were praying for Jim Jones to die. Jim Jones made a few trips to see a religious leader, George Baker, also known as Father Divine, a black preacher with a multiracial congregation who founded the Universal Peace Mission Movement in the 1920s. Father Divine was very charismatic and promoted racial and gender equality. Divine held unusual spiritual beliefs, though, claiming that he was God and that he had supernatural powers. He taught his thousands of followers that heaven and hell was a state of consciousness, to live communally as brothers and sisters, that goods and services must be donated, and that tobacco, alcohol, narcotics, vulgar language, and sex were all sinful acts and strictly prohibited. His followers had complete devotion to him, called him father or lord, and worked for little to no wages, pulled their resources together, and benefited from the common good. Divine told Jim to find an enemy and to make sure they know who the enemy is, as it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to him. At this point, Jim Jones started to somewhat reject God from his practice. He couldn't understand why such social injustice and hypocrisy could exist if there was a God. Jim said, When I was five years old, I was laying on springs with no covers, and the rain was pouring through the roof of my old ramshackle house, and they told me to pray to God. There was no God that came. The rain kept pouring. I then had a beam of consciousness. I said, There shouldn't be any poor. There shouldn't be any private property. When I looked inside of me, I found the power of socialism in me and I quit praying. Jim regularly attended gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis and was an open communist. 
to be a communist in America was considered to be anti-American and you would be labeled a traitor. Jim became frustrated with the prosecution of open communists in the United States and started to brainstorm ways as to how he could introduce communism into society and have people accept it. Jim Jones asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. It was around this time that Jim attended a faith healing service at a Seventh-day Baptist church. Now, if you're not familiar with what a faith healing is, it's the practice of prayer and gestures that elicit divine intervention for healing of physical ailments. Jim noticed that these faith healings typically brought in desperate people who would give all of their money away just for a chance to be healed of whatever disorder that they were suffering from. It was a surefire way to bring in people and therefore bring in their money. He ascertained that he could accomplish his social goals by using his Pentecostal style and adopting these faith healings as a central part of his practice. Jim organized a massive religious convention that spanned over five days, and he invited a well-known religious figure named Reverend William Branham, a healing evangelist and a religious author. Jim Jones knew that sharing the stage with someone as highly revered as Reverend William Branham would help establish a better reputation when he later decided to come out with his own healing powers. After this convention is when Jim started to introduce his own faith healings to his sermons, and his congregation grew rapidly. Aside from the faith healings, Jim also had a dynamic and engaging church experience that made people want to stay. He wanted it to be as fascinating for others as it was for him when he was a kid. So he used the same tactics. Shouting, chanting, dramatic pauses, the works. But he also made some additions that he thought would be more appealing, like dancing and upbeat hymns and even jazz music. People loved it. And it very much helped, too, that Jim himself was charming and charismatic. He was considered a modern and progressive pastor and was quite enticing to people. He was always friendly, always smiling. He always rocked a pair of aviator sunglasses <laughs> and a slicked back hairdo reminiscent of Elvis Presley. So as you can imagine, Jim's faith healings attracted a lot of people. Prior to a healing, Jim would eavesdrop on conversations and use this information to prove that he could read minds. Jim also had a small group of local devotees that he called his aides. And then these people would disguise themselves as regular churchgoers as to spy on the congregation. They would sift through garbage, visit members' homes, and even call visitors, pretending to be part of an agency conducting an anonymous survey, all just to gather intel for Jim Jones. All of the data that his aides would find would be written on a piece of paper, which Jim would keep hidden on his podium. To further instill his healing powers, during Mass, he would pick a member from the crowd who was sick or injured. When they would stand in front of him, he would pray and chant, and with a touch of his hand, they'd be cured. He claimed to have relieved migraine sufferers, clear cataracts, replaced broken hips, and he even claimed to cure cancer. Jim would display these cancerous lumps that he stored in a bag and claimed that he had removed them from people. Conveniently, the bag was always guarded by a few of his aides. Why? Because the cancerous lumps were actually chicken gizzards. But it was easy to believe charming and charismatic Jim Jones. During one mass, Jim addressed an elderly woman to stand and walk. She claimed that she couldn't because the lower half of her body was paralyzed. Jim replied to her, bless your heart and take that step. Hesitantly, 
She began to try to stand. She was very shaky at first, almost falling over. But with Jim's encouragement, she took a step, and then another step, and then another. With Jim Jones's voice bellowing in the background, she began to run, and the crowd went wild, howling over the miracle that they just witnessed. But what his unknowing followers didn't know was that the lady was merely another one of Jim's aides in disguise. She was healed of nothing, for she was never paralyzed. Jim began to get wider attention with these miracle performances, and before long, he was being invited to preach at conventions and assemblies throughout Indiana and the surrounding states. His healings were even broadcasted on television and radio. Eventually, the small building became far too overcrowded, so People's Temple had to move to a bigger church. Another deliberate move Jim Jones made was to only perform faith healings at the end of his sermons. This meant that the people in attendance would first have to sit through his lectures about equality for minorities, elderly, women, and poor. At this point, Jim was regularly studying different ways and techniques on how to manipulate members of his church. This is when Jim Jones made a power grab with his miracle healings. He started claiming that any churchgoers who defy him or doubt him would drop dead during Mass. And sure enough, a few people from the crowd would drop to the floor before the services were over. But this time, these people weren't actors. These people were real people who doubted Jim Jones. Jim's aides would gather intel and find out what members had their doubts and apprehensions about him. And once they found out who did, that person would unknowingly ingest sedatives moments prior to them passing out. Now, of course, they weren't dead, only passed out. So part of Jim Jones's ploy was out of the kindness and goodness of his heart, bring the non-believers back to life with his magical healing powers. This, like I said, was a major power grab, instilling fear into his congregation that if they, too, had their reservations about Jim Jones, they might meet their end. Once Jim Jones crossed that threshold of using drugs as a tool of manipulation, there was no going back, and it became a staple in his tool belt. It made him feel more powerful and tricked those who followed him into believing his claims. One time, a woman was drugged during a service and woke up later to find a cast on her leg. The church staff said that they had taken her to a hospital after she fell and broke her leg. And a few days later, Jim Jones called the woman up during mass. He placed his hands on her leg, started the usual chanting and praying, and eventually she was healed. The church staff then came in to remove the cast, and the woman stood up in surprise without any pain. The crowd roared, another miracle. Only her leg had never been broken in the first place. Once Jim Jones earned a massive following from these dramatic healing sermons, he started putting more of an emphasis on his socialist ideas into the mass. His healings on other people became less frequent because, as he told his following, he wanted to focus on healing society. He told his followers that living a life of God meant that they needed to give up their selfish behaviors. They needed to do for others before themselves. They needed to feed the hungry, take care of the sick and elderly, and donate their worldly possessions in order to gain economic equality. Jim expected complete devotion to this cause and commitment of time and money from his followers. Once Jim's healings became less frequent, the numbers of the masses started to dwindle. It became pretty clear that most of the people in his congregation were only there for the faith healings and didn't want to give up their possessions. However, Jim was left with a small group of loyal followers who were ready to do anything that Jim Jones instructed of them. 
they were loyal to the cause, and Marceline even stated that this brought quality to People's Temple. But Jim Jones wasn't concerned with quality. Jim Jones wanted quantity. And with more quantity came more money. And with more money, Jim was more likely to achieve his socialist goals. Jim blamed himself for the desertion of so many of his followers, and it kind of derailed him a little bit. At this point, Jim started to become obsessed with the threat of nuclear holocaust, which actually was a very real thing for most Americans during the 60s. Americans feared that nuclear annihilation could happen at any time. Many preachers fed into this fear and used it as a tactic to bring forth more people into their churches, Jim Jones included. In 1961, he announced to his remaining followers that he had a prophetic dream in which the entire American Midwest had been destroyed in a nuclear war. Shortly after, an article in Esquire magazine listed the places on Earth where one might survive a nuclear war, entitled, Nine Places in the World to Hide. Taking the list to heart, Jim packed up his family and left for one of those locations on the list, Belo Horizonte in southeast Brazil. They moved in 1962 and stayed there for nearly two years, all the while Jim's distrust and personal hatred towards the United States government intensified. While in Brazil, Jones struggled to get any work. The living conditions were not ideal, and the language barrier was a huge hurdle. The Jones family returned to Indianapolis in December of 1963, after some of his church staff advised him that the congregation was close to dismantling. Jim couldn't stand the thought that he abandoned his congregation and that even more of his followers were leaving him, so he decided to devise a plan that would make it impossible to. When he arrived back into the States, he immediately launched a plan to move what was left of his congregation. Seeing firsthand that segregation makes people feel hopeless and alone, Jim knew that if he was able to move his followers away from their friends and family, he would have more power over them. He knew that if they went somewhere far, it would be hard for them to go back, that they would be isolated. But he knew that it was going to take some convincing for people to uproot themselves. So he started his plan by instilling fear into his people, letting them believe that they were being targeted and under attack. Upon Jim's arrival back, his car tires were slashed and swastikas were painted all over the church. Jones started receiving threatening phone calls, a stick of dynamite was left in a temple coal pile, and a dead cat was thrown at the Jones house. Jones had been targeted before, but never to this extent. One day, Jones was visiting a friend's house, and conveniently, when his friend left the room, a rock came crashing through the window. He blamed this on the racists, of course, and used this to further influence people's perception that they were under attack. But it's worth noting that afterwards, the glass shards were found laying in the front lawn. He had people convinced that Indiana was unsafe. Once his congregation was legitimately terrified to live in the city, that's when Jim started planting the seed that they should move their church to somewhere more socially progressive and where they can live free and safe. And with nuclear holocaust still hot on his mind, Jim declared it was time to move to another location on the safe place list, Ukiah, California. Some people were so committed to the church that it wasn't even a question for them to leave. Others were hesitant to, but ultimately didn't want to be left behind. So in the summer of 1964, the Jones family, along with about 140 congregants, packed up and headed to Northern California. Outsiders of the church thought the members of People's Temple were crazy. 
how could they possibly uproot themselves and leave behind everything they know to follow wacko Jim Jones? Rumors started to flow that Jim Jones was behind all of the targeted attacks that his church experienced, and that he had brainwashed or manipulated his followers. In response to this, Jim had a few select people's temple members to see psychiatrists to have official documents proving that his followers were of sound mind. And, I mean, they were. His congregation believed full-heartedly in the cause of the church. They wanted to live a life of perfection, and they wanted to live more godly. They wanted to make society a better place, and they wanted to be free. Over the next few months, after moving to California, church services were held in rented church buildings, and throughout the week, Jim worked as a high school teacher. Temple members pulled together to build a church on the 60 acres of property that Jim Jones purchased. The property was called The Ranch and sat in the isolated Redwood Valley. Jim continued with his religious healings and sermons, all the while instilling the best way to live a life of perfection was to give up their selfish behaviors and do for others before themselves. People's Temple members wanted to be a positive influence on their new community, so they ran a soup kitchen, helped find jobs for the unemployed, established a food bank, a homeless shelter, and an animal refuge, even held adult education classes for the public. Soon, People's Temple purchased a few care homes. Some of these homes contained elderly, some contained the disabled, others contained the sick or mentally ill. Upon People's Temple's purchase of these care homes, the residents were asked to sign what was called a life care contract, which allowed the temple to keep their social security checks in exchange for their room, board, and healthcare. They ended up being paid roughly $300 a month per resident that was in their care. After three years of steadily building up its membership, the People's Temple was granted official standing by the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, Northern California, Nevada region, in 1968. The following February, the People's Temple Redwood Valley Complex opened, which contained Jim's home, a swimming pool, a child care center, an old folks home, and of course, the church. Around this time, Jim Jones adapted a few new rules for his congregation. He started to make People's Temple members address him as father or dad, and to address his wife, Marceline, as mother or mom. He also decided to ban sex, stating that it was a selfish act and it was a distraction from the church. His followers abided by this new decree, but rules also didn't matter for Jim Jones. He preyed upon multiple members of his congregation and indulged in many sexual relationships. Jim even had sex with his male followers, but never as regularly as he did with women. He claimed that he detested engaging in same-sex activity, but only did so for the male temple adherents' own good to connect them symbolically to him. Jim later claimed that everyone was gay, except for him, and that he was the only true living heterosexual. <laughs> How does that... I don't know, it's very 13-year-old-ish. Yeah. Like, I'm not gay, you're, you're gay. gay. <laughs> so, Jim told his victims... My love will not reach you if you put a piece of flesh between you and me and would manipulate them to believe that he was making a sacrifice in doing this for them and, afterward, would make them better relate to the cause of the church. The church being Jim's playground for sexual gratification was kept a secret to the congregation but was well known to his aides, a few of them even having the task of discreetly maintaining a calendar with all of Jim's sexual appointments or what... He referred to it as his fuck schedule. Jim Jones was honest about his rampant sexual deviancy with his inner circle, 
including Marceline. In 1968, Jim started a long-term affair with a woman named Carolyn Layton, and in 1974, he gained another long-term mistress named Maria Casares. Once Marceline found out, she at first demanded a divorce, but Jim Jones threatened that she would never see their children again, so she stayed and remained loyal and devoted to her husband. In 1974, Carolyn Layton was pregnant with Jim Jones's child. Jim told the congregation that Carolyn went on a secret mission to Mexico for the church, but really, Jim had sent her to live with her parents until she had the baby. During that time, Carolyn pressured her father, who was a Methodist minister, to marry her to temple member Mike Prokes so that their child would be legitimate. On January 31st, 1975, Carolyn gave birth to a son, Jim John Prokes. When Carolyn returned to the church with her baby boy, Jim told followers that she had been raped in Mexico while she was on her mission. People's Temple purchased and fixed up 18 old buses in which Jim Jones would use to go on tours across America to spread the word about socialism, equality, communal living, and most importantly, to recruit new members into his congregation. Jim revived his dramatic faith healings to draw a crowd, and with all of the same ploys and deception that he used to captivate people. He would boast about his little Garden of Eden and talk about how wonderful it was, saying that once he got there, you wouldn't ever dream of coming back. Jim Jones was able to successfully recruit many people doing these cross-country tours. Many people joined Jim's congregation, from working class to college kids, from atheists to believers, from the elderly to the young. He intentionally reached out to the homeless, the unemployed, addicts, and single parents by promising to care for them and protect them. He was able to take people from all walks of life and blend them in one pot by the ways of socialism. He would proclaim, There is indeed hope for our troubled nation, for in this single-spirited church, there is alive the type of dedication and commitment to brotherhood and fundamental human cooperation that may well be the best solution to the problems that beset our land. This group is demonstrating what religion should be. We would not have wars if everyone thought and lived as these people do. And he also stated, Those who remain drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment. Socialism. People quit their jobs and sold their homes to leave for California with Jim Jones. By 1973, there were a total of 2,573 members in People's Temple. Once they arrived... They were moved into buildings owned by People's Temple, but instead of the plentiful life that they were promised, they had small living quarters and only had an allowance of $5 per week. Members were assigned jobs and sometimes worked full hours to help with the endless work that came with their growing community. Working to build the church was grounds for bragging rights. Members would boast about how many hours a day that they worked and how little they slept due to their commitment. Those who didn't work full-time for the church were asked to donate 25% of their paychecks in order to prove their commitment. They were also required to donate their personal belongings, like jewelry. Church staff would even occasionally frisk members down and even check inside their shoes, just in case they were trying to hide anything. To encourage more and bigger donations, Jim would constantly manipulate his followers by telling them the money collections taken from Mass was significantly less than it was. When questions were asked about why Jim was constantly asking them for money, 
He revealed to them that he was planning on building them a commune located somewhere the fascists couldn't get them. This led to the creation of the Planning Commission, which consisted of 100 members, all predominantly young white females. The Planning Commission eventually assumed the responsibility of running the church and its people, but, of course, the final decision always lied with Jim Jones. The church still continued to collect the social security checks from people under their care, but these people only ate canned food and wore secondhand clothing. People who sold their homes to join the congregation first signed them over to the church, and then they were sold so the church could keep the profit, which was recorded as a gift. All in all, the church was making about $20,000 per week off its members, a number that was clearly kept hidden. It was around this time that Jim started his prolonged drug use. He took amphetamines to keep himself awake and energized, but it also considerably intensified his paranoia. He would constantly ramble on about enemy attacks and how people were after him. One Sunday after Mass, when the congregation left the church and was out in the parking lot, there was a gunshot. Suddenly, Jim Jones clutched his chest as a bright red stain appeared on his shirt. His aides quickly rushed him into the church and closed the doors. Panic gripped the parking lot. They truly believed that their leader had been assassinated. But, to their dismay, a half an hour later, the doors to the church opened and out walked Jim Jones, proclaiming he had healed himself. As a reminder to his congregation that he was constantly under attack, he hung up his blood-stained shirt inside of the church where everyone could see. However, no one seemed to notice that the shirt he was wearing when he was shot contained no bullet holes. Just like before in Indiana, these targeted attacks became more frequent. Swastikas and dead animals started showing up at the church again. Molotov cocktails were thrown. Jim even claimed to have found ground-up glass in his food. He was using the same tactics as before to instill fear in his congregation. He even recruited staff to act as bodyguards and carry guns and stand at the entrance of the church to question everyone and search anyone who came in, regardless if they were a longtime member or not. As his paranoia heightened, so did his controlling tendencies over the members of People's Temple. He did things such as making every member over the age of 11 years old sign an attendance sheet, so that way they would have a copy of each person's signature that they can use in an incriminating way if they ever tried to defy the church. He would also make the people of the temple frequently write pages of what they would do to people who hurt the church, their cause, or Jim Jones. And then they would encourage these people to be explicit and violent in their details. These pages would then be confiscated by the planning commission and then turned into Jim, even further ensuring his followers' allegiance by fear of what he could do with these false confessions. It was also encouraged that members spy on one another. If anyone heard anyone talking negatively about Jim Jones or the church, they were reprimanded. Friends and family members would turn each other in and would be rewarded for doing so. Jim tightened his grip on his congregation and made it feel as if escape was impossible, let alone talking about it. Written communication to outsiders was heavily inspected and screened prior to coming in or going out of the temple. Only positive statements about the church were allowed to be released to outsiders. Church meetings suddenly became very anti-Bible, and Jim claimed that it was a tool used to oppress. He explained that the Bible was used to hold down black people for over 200 years. At one point, he threw the Bible to the floor and shouted, 
Too many people are looking at this instead of me. Afterwards, Jim asked his congregation, in an effort to prove that the Bible held no power and to diminish the validity of a god, did you see any lightning come from the sky to strike me dead? Jim also told his congregation, you're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There is only one hope of glory, and that's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. Jim Jones had been preaching his socialist ways and blending it with religion for so many years that this was a natural jump for his followers. To isolate people within the congressional even further, families were separated intentionally. Jim Jones thought that this was key to having complete control over his members by making sure that no one had loyalty to anyone but him. Members were made to divorce couples who didn't join the temple, while others were forced to marry someone of the church's choosing or forced to break up if the church deemed it necessary. In 1970, People's Temple expanded their headquarters to a multi-story building in San Francisco. Jim and his family lived in the apartment on the third floor, and Temple members shared living quarters in the floors above. When the shared living spaces became too overcrowded, the members started sleeping in the sanctuary where they held their meetings. Eventually, members' pets were killed and buried in mass graves because there was no room for them. Furthermore, the church's spending budget on their members tightened, and they were fed cheap meals, often the same meal multiple times throughout the day. Jim Jones decided to make this move because it was very much a political city, and he believed that he could further promote his socialist beliefs. Members were made to support politicians who shared the same interests in the church, playing an instrumental role in George Moscone's victory as mayor in 1975, and subsequently, Jim Jones's appointment as chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. Soon, it became a known fact that it would be impossible to hold office without the support of Jim Jones. Jim was able to gain contact with prominent politicians and hosted them at his San Francisco apartment for discussions. To them and other outsiders, Jim was regarded as a selfless Christian. He was highly respected and honored for his courage to take on injustice and corruption. Jim Jones was even named one of the most influential clergymen in the country and later received the Los Angeles Herald's Humanitarian of the Year Award. But they didn't know the truth. It was around this time that the church started to receive its first negative media coverage. A series of articles in the San Francisco Examiner called Jim Jones out as a false messiah who was falsely claiming he had brought 43 people back from the dead. One journalist wrote an article claiming that he had seen Jim Jones heal the same lady several times. These articles drew interest of other media outlets who in turn published their own articles calling out the church. And things got even worse in 1973 when eight college students who came to be known as the Gang of Eight left People's Temple. They were children of original Temple members from Indiana and were considered very faithful and loyal members. But they were very smart and didn't trust or tell anyone else about their plans to escape, not even their families, just in case they tried to make them stay, or even worse, turn them in. The Gang of Eight wrote a letter to Jim and the church detailing the reasons for their abandonment. They explained that there was hypocrisy within the church staff. Most notably, Jim's inner circle had affairs with each other, even though they preached celibacy. Jim preached racial equality, however, the church staff was mostly white. If people had money, they were given positions of power within the church. No longer did the church care about working to make society a better place. When Jim Jones read the letter, 
he started a crusade to harass the Gang of Eight. Threatening letters made out of newspaper clippings and smeared in poison oak were mailed to them. The letters would say, We know where you live. We're watching you all the time. Keep your ass clean and your mouth clamped up. No peeks. The Gang of Eight were also harassed with multiple threatening phone calls. Obituaries were written in newspapers with their names listed as the deceased, and rented hearses were left idle outside of their homes. As you can imagine, all these actions were enough to scare the Gang of Eight into submission, and they kept quiet about the happenings within the temple. Jim Jones was furious that after all of his tricks and manipulation, that people still managed to desert him, again. When there was negative behavior inside of the church, it was usually corrected by private meetings with the wrongdoer, and then they were gently reprimanded. But after the Gang of Eight left, things changed pretty drastically. During sermons, Jim started calling troublesome members out of the crowd, and they were made to get up on stage. The remaining temple members were made to shame the individual on stage by verbally attacking them. The verbal attacks were threatening and personal to the troublemaker. The victim was required to stand silent and take the verbal assault from the crowd, which contained their family members and friends, who often joined in on the insults. Jim Jones called this disciplinary process catharsis, and was initiated no matter how small or tedious the crime was. This became normal over time, until one night during catharsis, Jim Jones decided to change things up again. As the crowd verbally assaulted and threatened the individual on stage, Jim silenced the crowd. As confusion came over the temple, Jim Jones asked for a belt, and then began whipping the transgressor on stage. This was the first time he had ever introduced physical punishment into catharsis, but over time, this too became normal. Members would be lined up on the stage and whipped. Even parents were made to whip their children. And if the parents were suspected of going easy on their child, they would be deemed disloyal and whipped themselves. Once the belt became too predictable, Jim Jones decided to change things up again and introduce the Board of Education into catharsis. The Board of Education was a one by four inch board that was two and a half feet long and was used up to a hundred times per catharsis. One time, 16-year-old Linda Myrtle was called up on stage. Her transgression was that she had greeted a female friend with a hug and a kiss. This was a justifiable reason to beat her with the Board of Education over 70 times as the crowd verbally assaulted her. If someone would refuse to stand and accept their beating, others were made to hold the individual down. People often collapsed afterwards and needed to be carried off stage. Younger children were thankfully spared from the Board of Education, but were subjected to what was called the blue-eyed monster. If the children committed a crime, they would be taken to a room and then locked inside by themselves. Then they would hear a voice call out to them, I am the blue-eyed monster and I'm going to get you. Eventually, this evolved into electroshock paddles that would be attached to the child, shocking them. Sometimes troublemakers were stripped naked and forced to stand in front of the crowd while others criticized their bodies. Some catharsis even included multiple people beating one troublemaker at the same time in front of the congregation. If the victim fell unconscious, water would be thrown at them to wake them up for them to receive the rest of their beating. After these punishments, Jim Jones would embrace the victim and say to them, I realize you have been through a lot, but it was for the cause. Father loves you and you're a stronger person now. I can trust you more now that you've gone through and accepted this discipline. To which the victim was required to reply into the microphone, thank you, father. 
the abuse slowly started to seep out of catharsis and into normal services. Doors started to be locked during all temple meetings and guarded by staff with guns. Jim Jones's meetings would last for hours, sometimes throughout the night, and would be as frequent as a few times a week. No one was allowed in or out until the sermon was over, not even to use the bathroom, which resulted in some temple members having to wet themselves. The guards would walk through the crowd, making sure no one was talking or falling asleep. One time a child got sick and threw up during a sermon, and Jim Jones forced the child to eat his vomit. In another time, an antsy three-year-old boy was forced to stay up all night scrubbing the floors with a toothbrush. One man accidentally fell asleep during a sermon, and the crowd was made to vomit and urinate on him. Oh my god. Some temple members were terrified and refused to speak out against the abuse in fear of falling victim to a catharsis themselves. Other members were so brainwashed that they dismissed the abuse within the congregation because, ultimately to them, the ends justified the means. Fundamentally, people's temple members were stripped of their free will, whether they chose to recognize it or not. As the pressure came down on the church from the media and Jim's paranoia heightened after the Gang of Eight left, an urgent meeting of the planning commission was called by Jim Jones. He expressed to them that he needed to know how loyal his following was claiming that they should be willing to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge for the cause. They should be devoted enough to commit revolutionary suicide. Revolutionary suicide was first coined in the 1960s by Black Panther Party leader Huey Newton in the context of Black Panther members being assassinated by their oppressors as a consequence of challenging the system and standing up against the power of the man. The man was going to shoot you down. You would die at the hands of the oppressor but the movement would continue. Death was a sacrifice for the cause. But Jim Jones's interpretation of revolutionary suicide was much different. According to him, it was a voluntary act committed by members of a cause to make a political statement, an appropriate alternative to being taken prisoner or going into slavery. Jim declared his love for socialism by saying, I'd be willing to die to bring it about, and if I did, I'd take a thousand with me. As Jim became obsessed with the thought of his followers dying for his cause, the media was attacking him even more. Soon after journalists published their negative articles about Jim Jones or the church, they would receive dozens of calls a day from temple members reprimanding them for harassing Jim. Some members even picketed outside of their offices. The congregation thought that these actions would help cease media scrutiny, but it did the exact opposite. Journalists dug deeper and wrote about the hypocrisy within the church. Stories emerged of financial abuse, mind control, and tax evasion. And then came the accusations of the suspicious deaths of a few People's Temple members. In March 1970, a Temple member named Maxine Harp was found hanged in her garage, and her death was ruled a suicide. After her death, her three children were put into Temple-owned foster homes, and the church collected more than $10,000 in welfare support checks on their behalf. Later on, Maxine's son Daniel said that his mother wanted to get out of the temple when Jim Jones and his aides destroyed her marriage, family, and career. Daniel believes that his mother did not kill herself, but rather was targeted for assassination. In November of 1973, temple member Rory Hythe was shot and killed by another temple member named Chris Lewis, who just so happened to be one of Jim Jones's bodyguards. Chris Lewis was arrested and tried for the crime, but eventually was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Rumors circulated that Jim orchestrated the whole thing, 
although the motive was unclear. In July of 1974, Truth Hart died of congestive heart failure shortly after she threatened to leave when Jim Jones started disrespecting the Bible. Jim Jones had predicted Truth's death days prior and had also ordered a temple nurse to order a drug known to induce heart attacks. Jim then used Truth's death as an example of what would happen to anyone if they tried to leave the church and father's protection. In October of 1975, John Head jumped off a three-story building and was found dead. John was receiving treatments for his depression at a mental health hospital, so his death was ruled a suicide. Coincidentally, he had just recently won $10,000 in an insurance settlement and was convinced by an unknown temple member to join the congregation and turn over the money in exchange for his life care. Three weeks later, the 22-year-old called his parents to inform them that he was unhappy in the church and told them of his plans to leave. The following day was when he was found dead. In the fall of 1976, Bob Houston, who was a youth counselor with People's Temple and worked the railroads at night, was found dead in a railway yard in San Francisco, apparently crushed by a train car. It was ruled an accident, but a number of people took issue with the unexplained circumstances surrounding his death. Most importantly, his gloves, or lack thereof. Bob Houston was a musician, and he always made sure to wear gloves for protection while he was working, and would only take them off when he went to shake someone's hand. And when Bob's body was found dead, he wasn't wearing his gloves. And coming full circle, in late 1977, Chris Lewis, the bodyguard of Jim Jones and the one who shot Roy Hythe, was found dead outside of a temple-owned thrift shop. The police concluded that he was shot in the back by two different guns, and then they said that the crime was drug-related, but there were never any suspects. However, that didn't stop Jim Jones from declaring he was murdered by racists, but inside of the church, Temple staff used Chris as an example of what could happen if they didn't listen to Temple orders. Jim's lawyers threatened multiple publications with lawsuits, which resulted in many stories being tossed out and never published, while others had to write redactions on the ones that were released. From then on, Jim viewed the media as his enemy and used their negative stories about him and the church as proof to his congregation that they were in danger. People didn't want them to succeed. They wanted to spread lies to hurt their cause. On August 1st of 1977, New West Magazine's editor, Rosalie Wright, made a phone call to none other than Jim Jones. She had informed him that in six hours, an article written about him and the church was being sent to print. The article contained interviews from 10 ex-members of People's Temple, describing the horrors that they experienced. The article detailed how the church was nothing but an illusion of safety and happiness. It detailed the catharsis rituals, the financial misdealings, and how Jim Jones was nothing but a perverted, egotistical con artist. The ex-Temple members described not only how the church was filled with severe punishment and cruelty, but how they were afraid of assassination attempts against them now that they have spoken out about the church. Rosalie read the article verbatim to Jim Jones and, unbeknownst to her, five other members of his inner circle. As Rosalie concluded reading the editorial, Jim reached for a pen and scribbled something on his notepad. He revealed to the others what he wrote, a message that read, We leave tonight. And that, my creepy burritos, is where I will leave you. Because this is a part one. And next week is part two. <laughs> I should label it part three just to 
fuck with people. So that they they're like, where the fuck is part two? Yeah. So you have to listen to the end of this episode to <laughs> to assure that my congregation is, is gonna listening listen to my entire podcast episode. But uh, yeah, so I really wanted to go. I this is probably very long. We have been recording for almost two hours now. Oh yeah. Who knows how long it's gonna be whenever this is edited down, but. I've been talking for a while, but the main reason why I wanted this to be so long was to go into the history and the upcoming of Jim Jones, because at first he very much was a compassionate person who really cared about equality and... A lot of um, cults start off with, with good intentions of creating a community that's for the better, trying to make the world a better place, being better people, that they're going to have their own society, and that's the only way to make the world a better place is to show them how it is to be better people, basically. Mm -hmm. So I find that really interesting, like, when you look at different cults. So, like, Jonestown, initially, he was very much that way. Uh, If you look at Rajneesh Param, if I'm saying that right, and... Scientology is also another big one where it's all based off of being a better person, building your community, yourself. It's all just manipulation. It is. They're always so charismatic, Mm -hmm. being able to reel people in. Mm -hmm. And it's the showmanship of it. Mm -hmm. And most of them are like showmans. Like Jim Jones, he was very charismatic. He loved being like putting on a really good show. I also believe, too, if you look at uh, pictures of Jim Jones, like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until he, like, got kind of crazier Mm -hmm. and started his drug use that he started dressing up kind of like Elvis. Elvis, yeah. (laughs) And I think it's because he thought that people would think it was cool for Mm -hmm. him. Because if you look at earlier pictures of him, he, like, he had kind of the same hairstyle, but it was nowhere near as, like, big Mm -hmm. as it was uh, later on. And he he never wore aviators. It was just... He just looked like a regular guy. Mm. If you tune in to next week's episode, which I hope you fucking do, um, we're going to talk about where the fuck did they go and what the fuck happened. This episode was a little rough, kind of serious, because it deals with some shit. And so uh, next week is going to be dealing with some shit. Some more shit. Put your big burrito pants on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> get some extra space get unbutton some. them jeans don't even wear jeans don't wear it's almost thanksgiving pull out the thanksgiving pants yeah pregnancy pants <laughs> the maternity pants everyone has to have a pair yeah so next week come back get lost on that sauce don't wear pants make sure you bring both of your hands to eat that big ass burrito we're about to feed you and on that note a bye-bye now bye-bye All I got was the background music is, ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? We'll make heaven a place on earth.
They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. Wow. Did they write it about Jim Jonestown? Jones? <laughs> Jim Jones? Jonestown? Probably.